Hello, I'm Ian Brannan and welcome back to the Kielda Observatory podcast. Don't forget to hit subscribe on whichever app you prefer to use to listen to your podcast so you get future episodes direct as soon as they are available. Coming up in this month's episode, we're speaking to Professor John Gherkin from Durham University's Centre for Advanced Instrumentation about some of the amazing things happening both at Durham University and across the wider northeast and northeast England really playing a pivotal role in Britain. Britain's Space Exploration Programme. The Centre for Advanced Instrumentation, though, really works on some amazing things to do with optics and improving our view of the universe. Some of the uh, instruments or components for instruments that have been produced um, by the group in Durham, are, some of them are actually sitting on the moon now. Um, other components are all ready to go onto the James Webb Telescope when that's eventually launched from the United States, and also in orbit around uh, Mars on the ExoMars planet system. Uh, So we have a large involvement that goes right down from ground-based telescopes all all the way up to instruments that are now going round Mars. The work isn't just helping out in space either. They've also got uh, involvement in a project which is helping out the research into COVID-19 too. So we'll hear more about that from Professor John Gherkin very soon. First of all, though, let's have a look at what's been happening at Kielder Observatory and the things that you can look out for in the night sky over the coming weeks as well with, well, I usually call him science communicator Dan Pye because that was his job title. Um, Congratulations to Dan because he's had an upgrade since our last episode. Uh, what do we call you now and, and do we have to bow or kneel? Uh, it's still me. I'm still the same. <laughs> so the, the official title is Director of Astronomy and Science Communication. There um, he is, the Director of Astronomy and Science Communication. Dan Pye joins us. Yeah. Um, hello, Dan. So so what's been going on? Not a lot, I imagine, at uh, the observatory itself, uh, apart from the occasional bit of snow. Yeah, um, that's it. But, We've yeah. been under quite some snow, actually. Every mm. time I've looked at the webcam, it's been getting deeper and deeper and deeper. <laughs> <laughs> um, what's what's the latest then? Um, with uh, obviously with the closures, that's ongoing until um, uh, sort of the, the probably the middle part of March now. Um, you'd think, but um, you're still hopeful. Yeah, still hopeful. Still doing things in the background. We've still got lots of work that we're doing with schools. Um, we're ploughing that forward. We've got lots of other smaller projects that we're working on as well. Um, and we're working on our um, our app at the moment. Actually, is a real big focus to what we're working on. Um, it's currently in its testing, testing uh, stage. So it's going out to 500 guests. Um, who've previously visited the observatory that are on our on our database, they'll receive an email um, and be invited to sample the app and and give us some feedback on that. And then if they do, they um, get entered into a competition in which they could win a goodie bag of all sorts of different stuff from the observatory. Um, so that'll be coming out to, to probably some of the people who are listening to this podcast. Um, other stuff that we've been working on as well is our digital offering and how we interact with guests away from the observatory. We're still pushing that forward and really starting to drive the change with that. And hopefully that will be ready to roll out by hope uh, maybe summertime. 
The first half of February was the CPRE, the Countryside Charities Star Count, and um, Kielder Observatory encouraging people to get involved in that. Now, you may have missed the closing date because the official closing date is the 14th of February, uh, but you're still being encouraged to have a look into the night sky and see how many stars you can see from where you live. Yeah, that's right. You can go out in your garden if you follow the link to the website um, on our social media. You can go, it'll give you all the information that you need in order to be able to do this. Um, and the idea is that we're able to then build up a picture as to how uh, much light pollution is impacting um, much of the UK. Uh, you need to go outside and count stars within the constellation of Orion, essentially. Um, and the amount of stars that you can see within Orion dictate how dark your skies are. Um, so in the Northumberland National Park, we would expect to see a lot more than what we would in the centre of Newcastle. Um, and doing that on such a mass scale across the entire United Kingdom means that we're able to really develop a strong a physical sense of data rather than just a numerical sense of data because we have uh, uh, the ability to measure sky brightness but it's better sometimes just to get that data with your eyes as well so we're able to do that um, with the big star count and it also engages kids in uh, in looking up at the, the, the sky as well. I'll tell you what, we had a great time in in our uh, garden doing the big bird watch uh, a few oh, weeks yeah. ago, which was which was a great hit. So now you can follow on from that excitement by counting the stars in the sky above your uh, above your house, wherever you are in the UK, uh, and, and get involved in that and uh, the website with more information. Uh, looking ahead to what's happening in February, then in the night sky, um, what's on the agenda over the coming weeks, Dan? Um, February is actually quite a quiet month for uh, for astronomical things that are happening in the night sky. There's a, there's a new moon and a full moon as there is every month, so that that hasn't changed, which is a good thing because if it did. There'd be uh, there'd be issues. Um, <laughs> the moon will still be there. <laughs> Tick that one off. Good. Um, Mercury reaches its great, greatest western elongation in the very early stages of March. March sixth. It's uh, a good hand and a half's width um, away from the sun. So that'll be a really good time um, to spot Mercury in the morning sky. So if you're a, an early riser and you're getting up in the morning you might just be able to see mercury above the horizon which is an incredible planet to see because it's so close to the sun um, and it is very very small as well it's one of the rarer planets that you, you're able to see with the naked eye um, that's the the biggest highlight over the next four weeks in your skies my daughter's been doing um, a, a bit about space uh, at, at her reception she's in reception year and they've had them singing this song and the song says that uh, venus is the hottest planet is that correct yeah yeah that's correct venus is 470 degrees on its surface or 472 degrees um on on its surface much hotter than mercury uh, and that that sounds strange you yeah, think that's that... the crazy thing i'm thinking well one that's next to the sun surely will be the hottest <laughs> yeah and it's not it's um wow. i mean it's still very very toasty on mercury as well one side in particular um is constantly baked by the sun and then as it spins around because it's got no atmosphere that heat it just escapes into the vacuum of space and space is, is of course very cold so you end up with one side of mercury being um a good minus couple of hundred degrees and one side of mercury being a good plus couple of hundred degrees so it's been baked and and frozen at the same time as mercury which is really interesting um particularly for the 
for the uh, the geological structures that we see on Mercury. There's some incredible um, fault lines on Mercury, which which are just insane to to, to see the detail of. Um, but with with Venus, the reason why Venus is so unbelievably hot is because it experiences um, a huge greenhouse effect. It's got such a dense, thick atmosphere that that traps the heat in. It can't escape. It can't go anywhere. So it just constantly heats itself up, heats itself up, heats itself up until it reaches the point which it's reaching uh, right now. It's, it may well have been billions of years ago a tropical paradise, but all of that... Um, greenhouse effect that's taken place over the last couple of billion years or what have you has made it a very miserable uh, place to visit full of volcanoes um, and raining uh, sulfuric acid um, and the atmosphere is so dense that if you did make it there through all of that rain and weather and and all of the other misery um, you would be crushed anyway because it's it, the atmosphere is so dense it could crush you in seconds just sounds like a uh... Fairly heavy weekend in Blackpool gone wrong, doesn't it? It's a very similar experience. Um, let's move to our Pie in the Sky feature, which was such a success last month. Let's do it again. Uh, one thing for people to look out for that maybe they didn't realise what's in the night sky. Uh, what should we look for? Dan Pie in the sky. Let's have a look at the constellation of Leo. Um, so there's a beautiful star uh, in Leo, um, which is called Algeba. Um, Algeba... Is, is 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 an incredible star to see through a, a telescope because although it appears as a single star when you look at it through a telescope it's a double um, you need quite a high powered telescope although in in order to be able to really make out the separation between the two but algebra is a really cool star to see nevertheless it's a nice bright star um, in the constellation of leo and leo um, looks like um, i like to think he looks like a sphinx um, across the night, massive sphinx across the night sky is what it looks like. It's a nice, nice constellation in itself. That's Kilda Observatory's Director of Astronomy, that is Dan Pye, with his tip of what to look out for in the night skies this month as uh, and when the conditions allow. I'm Ian Brannan, this is the Kilda Observatory podcast, and our guest in this month's episode is Professor John Gherkin from the Centre for Advanced Instrumentation at Durham University. Now, Dan, just give us a little overview about the sort of things that uh, John's department has been involved with and the kind of work going on right here in the northeast and um, so john's uh, department works on some of the most incredible uh, feats of technology that we go through in, in in astronomy it's always been known that astronomy and space travel has uh, incredible technological feats which drive it forward and one of the most exciting for me right now is an area called adaptive optics um, it allows us to use our big ground-based telescopes and almost delete our atmosphere, see straight through our atmosphere. Um, and at Durham University, they're producing some of the, the most incredible pieces of kit which enable us to be able to do that with immense accuracy. It's one of the most fantastic um, uh, leaps forward in technology. And it means that we can get a, a, a view of the universe like never before. I mean, we've seen images such as the Hubble Deep Field, um, which are incredible high-resolution images of our night sky, so much so that we're able to see galaxies on the very edge of our visible uh, universe. With 39-metre telescopes, which is the biggest telescope in construction right now, applying that adaptive optics system to a telescope such as that, 
when the one that was really good before was only two and a half meters in diameter, you can imagine the resolution that we're going to be able to get with something like this is just mind boggling. And that that's some of the stuff that, that's being worked on by Durham University right now and which John is going to talk to us about. You're listening to the Kielder Observatory podcast. Welcome along. I'm Ian Brannan, and it's my great pleasure to welcome from Durham University's Centre for Advanced Instrumentation, it is Professor John Gherkin. Thanks for joining us, John. Do you want to start, first of all, by telling us, firstly, a bit more about your department and, and the work that you do? Yes, so I, as personally, I'm actually the Professor of Biophysics at Durham, but I run the group that makes advanced instrumentation which are instruments, optically based instruments that get fitted onto telescopes around the world, but also now increasingly miniature optics or miniature devices, small high performance devices that can get integrated into satellites, both large satellites and increasingly towards the smaller cube satellites um, where one rocket can launch multiple small satellites, which then get put into orbit around the Earth or, or sent further afield as well and on those the instrumentation is complex but it has to be small and compact so we're moving down in, and taking uh, uh, our instruments along those directions and in fact some of the uh, instruments or components for instruments that have been produced um, by the group in Durham are some of them are actually sitting on the moon now um, other components are all ready to go onto the James Webb telescope when that's eventually launched from the United States and also in orbit around uh, Mars on the ExoMars planet system. Uh, so we have a large involvement that goes right down from ground-based telescopes all the, up, all the way up to instruments that are now going round Mars. And on ExoMars, in, in our previous episode, we spoke all about uh, ExoMars and, and the next stage of that, which is to put a lander on the moon and, and hopefully look for signs of life but that mission began a number of years ago and um, you're heavily involved in that and and that is uh, a mission to look for um, the different gases isn't it around in the atmosphere around around Mars. Yes, so, so one of the focuses of the group that I run is doing spectroscopy where you look at the light that's either being transmitted or given off um, from a, a planet or through a, through a planet's atmosphere. And then by looking at the different wavelengths of light, you can determine what the atmosphere is actually consists of, what its pressure, what the density of various materials are that are present in the atmosphere. So we have these spectroscopic systems, high precision spectroscopic systems, Systems that operate all the way from the ultraviolet, so very short wavelengths of light, all the way up into the infrared, long heat-based uh, wavelengths of light. So we can analyze the light that comes down, look at it in, de in some detail on, our, on the small spectroscopic instruments that are built into the satellites, and then that gives you a great understanding of what's present within the atmosphere of the moons or the planets. I'm sure I'm not the only one who's quite surprised as to just how staggering the work is that's going on in the Northeast and what a pivotal role the Northeast has in helping out uh, space exploration um, on distant planets such as Mars. And how did the Northeast and how did Durham University uh, come to be in this position to be so pivotal in space exploration? 
So, um, Dartmouth University has always played and had a large um, astro astronomy unit, and um, particularly this was led by Sir Arnold Wolfendale, who unfortunately died very recently. Um, but he was the astronomer royal and um, started, and he, he looked for particles. Um, but this led to a growth in astronomy, both um, people who analyze the data, make predictions, um, build universes in computers, all the way through to actually making the instruments that actually then enable you to put, put facts and details into these models that are being developed. So Durham as a university has this broad spectrum right from the very detailed theoretical cosmology all the way through to building an instrument with optical fibres that uh, then go into a spectrometer where you look at the wavelengths of light um, enabling people to search for dark matter. So this has grown up over a long period of time within Durham and we are recognised as being one of the leading universities um, within Europe and indeed around the world for astronomy and what has grown on the back of this is then this ability to make instruments and this is then becoming a, a focus within the northeast where yes 20 years ago, 30 years ago, you needed a very large infrastructure to build satellites. Now the satellites are smaller and by collaborating with people around the world, our instruments and our uh, components can then get put into these satellites. And this is now forming a focus within the Northeast um, to actually grow on the back of this for precision instruments that are space related and the associated then aspect of processing the data that comes back from such satellites, whether they're just orbiting the Earth or going round Mars. And we've talked about Mars and, and Great Britain is building the, the lander that is going to hopefully find signs of life on Mars in, in the next few years. Would it be fair to say that now is probably one of the best times ever for Britain being involved in, in any kind of space exploration and uh, very exciting for anybody who's looking to get further involved in this, maybe take it up as a career or study it further, and particularly in Durham. It, we've got lots going on and lots going for us, haven't we? Uh Yes, I mean, it, it's interesting. I think there are different aspects of it as well. And I, I've thought about this. So um, this is going to give some clues away as to my age. But um, when I was growing up, I would play with um, models on my uh, on my parents' lounge floor while I was watching the astronauts exploring the moon. Mm -hmm. And what's interesting there Personally, it wasn't so much the astronomy aspect of it, it was the exploration, and in my case, the instruments that they were using that stimulated my interest in physics, um, that I then went on to study at university, and then I've ended up in the position that I'm in now. So as well as looking at the pure, if you like, theoretical, or the, the trying to understand how the universe forms, there are the other aspects of it as well, the instruments, the satellites, the communication, with those satellites now all the way um, down to miniature components that go into such instruments. So I think that one of the wonderful things about astronomy in general is it can look and stimulate people at all levels, whether it's thinking about these really big pictures down to very practical miniature engineering challenges. 
And tell us about some of the projects you're involved in uh, at the moment, because you've got plenty of things uh, on the go at the minute, um, right the way from uh, assisting with searching for, for dark matter to the fight against COVID. It's, uh, it's, it's a, a, fair, a fair spread. Uh, yes, so uh, it, we, we, within the centre we build instruments and I'll, I'll sort of start at the top end and then work down if you like. So um, the instruments that are built in Durham, we have a special facility out at Sedgefield um, at Net Park where the instruments are assembled and very often put together. These may be components, so one of the things that's been done recently uh, is a multiple miniature optical fibers so they, these are the fibers that we normally think about carrying uh, our communications around the world on but here the, they're being used put at the focus of a telescope um, the fibers are then fed into spectrometers where the light uh, the wavelength of the light that we've been looking at is broken down and examined and in particular we've just in, uh, delivered a very large bundle of fibers so multiple fiber cables where each one of those cables contains over 5,000 individual optical fibres, all with miniature lenses on the end of it. And these have, uh, have been installed and are now being used in, in a programme called DESI, which is looking at a dark matter survey. So this is now on a telescope in America, and it's being used for exploring the universe to see if there is any dark matter. And the results that come back from this instrument, one of the places that they're being analysed is actually back in Durham. So in this case, we've built a vital component for the telescope all the way back to now processing the, the data from that. And this has been a sort of strong uh, focus of the research that's taking place within Durham. It's not just building the instrument, it's developing the demand, understanding um, what you want to look at within the universe, then how do you build an instrument that can be put on a telescope or launched into space, and then processing the results that come back. So we also have instruments, um, novel spectrometers that are on the South African Large Telescope, the Subaru Telescope, um, and also here uh, a thing called KMOS. And these are very precise spectrometers that are specifically set up to look at small wavelength regions of light on telescopes. Um, clearly there are engineering challenges there because as the telescope moves round you don't want all the fibre optic cables winding themselves up no. so we, we, <laughs> we, we otherwise the telescope will just spin back round in the other direction so you you and, and clearly a telescope tips and there are uh, occasionally part of your instrument may have to go upside down so the engineering challenges in making these things and being really efficient because every photon uh, um, the, every photon of light that you've collected, you want to use it as efficiently as possible. You don't want it being lost in your in your optical fibres. So we really worry about the throughput and getting everything really precise. Um, so that's the spectrometers. And then it goes down to some of the components that we were talking about earlier. We have out in Durham um, one of the most advanced optics manufacturing facilities um, in the UK and indeed in Europe, where we can use a so-called diamond machining. So this is a, a sort of, it's a lathe or it's, it's a five axis machine where we can plot onto a, onto a metallic surface using a diamond tip virtually any shape you want. 
So we can make on these five axis machines, which cost about half a million pounds each, the machine, the metal part, sorry, that we're machining goes round perhaps 100,000 times a, a minute and the diamond tip comes in and you machine directly onto the metallic surface a mirror or you can put a grating which will break the uh, light down into its individual components and because it's been machined on metal these are very very solid very robust but you can also 3d print the metal so some of the metal is hollow so that when you then machine the surface you've made a very high precision lightweight component and to give an idea of the accuracy, we can machine these surfaces to a few nanometers, so uh, a hundredth of the wavelength of light. And that is as precise as you can get by mechanically grinding something, which is the traditional way of making optics. But crucially here, as I said, we can make basically any shape. So most optical components, uh, traditionally a spherical because they're made by polishing we can make so-called aspheric surfaces which means that very often the aberrations the distortion in the image that you will get through uh, any optical system we can shape the material that actually removes that distortion making so instead of having to make a lens or an optical system with multiple elements in it we can reduce the number of elements down because each of those elements can help in itself to remove the overall aberrations of the instrument and it's these metallic machined components that are in <clears throat> the James Wedd's uh, telescope that's going to be launched as I said and also now orbiting Mars or sitting on the moon. And we mentioned this um, ELT, the Extremely Large Telescope, and uh, you mentioned about the lasers being used there to, to calibrate the, the aberrations. And there's an artist's impression of this telescope, the one in Chile, and it's got these lasers firing out of it. It does look like something out of uh, a science fiction movie. It looks quite incredible. And this is going to be actually open and working, hopefully, by 2024. Yes, it's at first light is supposed to be 2024. And one of the instruments that will be used on the on the first light that comes through the telescope again, Durham is is involved in building part of the components of that. Yes, the, these um, they make beautiful, spectacular pictures. Um, where in the case they those are artists' impression because that big telescope is going to be using over eight lasers to create artifact eight artificial guide stars because the aperture of the telescope is so big um, we need to correct at different points across the image um, but even now uh, telescopes in uh, in the canary islands have lasers on them typically these only have a single laser which as i said is either orange to light up the sodium um, or you can actually use a green laser which actually you then look at light that's scattered back from the atmosphere and pick it up um, yes it does look very spectacular uh, they are also very high power lasers so you have to worry um, there's a various safety precautions that have to be taken have to take place um, and they also have to keep aircraft away from that area not that it would destroy an aircraft but um, that amount of laser power going into an aircraft would not be good for any of the pa any of the people that are inside it I'd heard a rumor about these lasers and I, and, and I want to verify the rumor right now actually if I can because you're going to know the answer and um, but I've heard that they are capable of popping pigeons is that is that correct or are these not that powerful 
<laughs> oh, they, they, I, I, I think they, I think they would take a pigeon out without any problem at all. Um, uh, these, <laughs> Quite these extreme. Are, they're, 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 <laughs> Yes, these are large, high power, so they're over 100 watts. Um, They're they're relatively large in diameter, but yes, you would not want to be a bird flying into one of them. Yeah, and that's why they're building it in a remote location north of Chile and not in Trafalgar Square. Uh, yes, that's one of the reasons, yes. Most telescopes are now built at about 10,000 feet, 3,000, 4,000 metres. And one of the reasons for that is, of course, you've then removed a significant portion of the atmosphere. Um, the other thing, of course, that we all know about, even the, the, when you're looking uh, through a telescope at home, um, is you want to do it with a dark sky. And therefore, building a telescope either in, in the middle of a, a, the, the desert on the top of a Chilean mountain, there is not a lot of other buildings around there, so the sky is really very dark, which of course is actually one of the advantages of Kielder as well. We are in a, in a very dark part of the United Kingdom. As we've been talking about, the northeast is uh, very much at the centre of, of Britain's space programme, and it must uh, be very handy to, to have such a great facility as Kielder Observatory nearby as well to um, help further your research and, and for Kielder to get uh, the benefit of your knowledge as well. Tell us a bit more about the partnership between Durham University and Kielder Observatory. Um, so this is actually something that the university is, and, and I know Kielder are, are looking to grow. So um, we have some of the expertise that we have within our group uh, goes up and services the instruments up at Kielder to make sure that they're performing at, at the peak of their uh, their quality. Um, and we're also looking now to say so. You, you capture a picture with a star of a star that's really very interesting. But as I was talking about earlier, what you really want to be able to do is to actually look at the individual wavelengths of light and things like that. So we're looking at ways that we can actually take um, instruments that have been developed for these very large telescopes around the world and consider is there a way of actually applying this to some of the Kielder telescopes to try and give spectroscopic capability, which then means that you can actually do serious uh, state-of-the-art science with these telescopes, as well as encouraging people to look at uh, the, the wonders of the universe. It's been the case probably since space exploration began that the discoveries that are made help us out here on Earth in in other ways too. And and that's true for some of the things that you've discovered and some of the things that you've created at Durham University as well, isn't it? There's always the comment made, um, particularly in the what may be the, the sort of coming financial challenges that have been set by COVID is you say, well, you're building these astronomical instruments, that's all very good, but what else can they capable of doing? So personally, I actually take a lot of this technology that has been designed and built for astronomy and then actually begin to apply it, if you like, down on Earth in a more everyday manner. So, for example, one of the things that I personally am involved in is using the adaptive optics 
on a microscope. It's actually the same challenge that you have in a telescope, except it's not quite as dynamic. But as you image deeply with a, with a, with a microscope, you have to look through the sample. That aberrates the, 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 uh, the image that you're looking at exactly in the same way that we were talking about um, the atmosphere doing for starlight. So personally, we're looking at building these adaptive optics into microscopes that we've already done. And actually taking also some of the optical fiber technology that I talked about and integrating that into instruments. Uh, we do actually have one that's in a clinical use at the moment up in Edinburgh, which is being looked at and used on COVID patients to examine what's actually happening. So I think part of here is building up these new instruments that are going to go on these very large, very expensive telescopes um, to help us to understand the universe and the dynamics that are taking place there all the way through to actually taking that technology and using it um, for other applications so this is an area that's of growing importance and the final comment i would say is also um, trying to communicate with satellites. One of the challenges um, that there are, we are putting more and more satellites up, some of them large satellites around the Earth, and taking the data so we can now take high resolution images with lots of spectroscopic information, lots of wavelength information in there. And these images then become very, very large. And we have to get the data off the satellite and down onto Earth. And of course, the way we move data around on Earth now, it's all done by light through optical fibers. Clearly, again, we can't run an optical fiber up to a satellite. But the idea that we could actually use light propagating through the atmosphere to take data off the satellites is an area that we're also looking at. Clearly, if we're taking the data off the we need the light to be collected very efficiently, so we are then back to our adaptive optics. So the idea that we can also then take the adaptive optics that we've put onto telescopes and use them for communicating with satellites going around the Earth um, to pull off all that information, those are probably in areas that uh, will be of growth in the near future. Just like to ask about um, CubeSat actually, because they, uh, I don't really know, admittedly, I don't really know a massive amount about CubeSats and what their capabilities <coughs> are, but I've heard about the possibilities of um, smaller projects, smaller businesses getting involved in launching small satellites into space and also schools launching satellites into space as well. And I just wondered if you had any comments on any of that. I think, um, it's it's clearly a rapidly emerging field. I mean, one of the challenges um, has always been that if you're going to put a satellite up into space, you would put a single large, relatively large satellite onto a rocket and launch it up. And that was clearly always going to be very, very expensive, even if you just consider the testing, because if you put this all the instruments into a satellite and you've launched a rocket with a single satellite in it, it has to work. And therefore it's very expensive, very complex to do all the testing. Now that you can put multiple satellites onto reusable rockets, um, which can go up and push them around, then you are looking at these smaller satellites and even um, there's CubeSats and there's smaller things than that. So satellites that are uh, let's say a cubic meter or less in, in, in size. And if you've launched 
a multiple number from a, a single rocket launch. If one of them doesn't work, it's clearly annoying, but it's not really fatal and, and too expensive. So the idea is that it then becomes very much easier for companies or exactly as you said, schools potentially to be involved, building an instrument, putting it onto a satellite where the testing does not need to be as extensive or as complex as it is at the moment. And it may also be that this that the instrument on it may need to last for, let's say, matters of weeks and months rather than years, which again means um, the components can be of lower cost, lower specification. So this is clearly an area that is going to become increasingly important um, and is one that small companies or smaller companies or schools can get actively involved in because the startup costs are not as large as having to be a large multinational aerospace company to launch your satellite. Can you imagine that? I mean, it's just the the type of the stuff that you can experience in education now as a kid. If you if I was told when I was a kid, oh, today we're going to work on launching a satellite into space, <laughs> that would just be such an incredible thing to do from an academic point of view in 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 in. in in schools it would be so inspiring i think for them it well it is it, it comes yeah. back to my my earlier comment you know why am i doing what i'm doing okay i personally am not building um instruments that are going onto satellites or instruments that are going onto large telescopes but it was this interest in my case in the uh, in the moon landings and clearly now it's possible to engage with uh, these satellites that are going up and be actively involved in them yes the opportunities there to encourage people to become involved are, are huge and if we can motivate people to look in these sort of areas i'm all in favor of that just astounds me that we have all of this stuff happening in the northeast on our doorsteps um, and the significance of the work that's being done as well. And when you think about the northeast of England, I think much of the rest of the country isn't thinking, you know what, they're leading the way in some of the most impactful research in astronomy on the planet. It just, <laughs> it, it's just such a, an under, um, under I don't want to say underappreciated, but under-talked about area of, 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 of stuff that we do in the northeast. And we've had instrument companies that have built telescopes in the past, so there is actually a slightly longer tradition uh, that goes back in this area of optics. Uh, sometimes they were used for military sites but often they were used for astronomy so th mm. there is a, a great historical record when you go back as well it's really interesting when you google um adaptive optics as well uh, there's a, a very significant image i remember seeing from the vlt which was an image of um it was i think it was neptune um pre the adaptive optics then post adaptive optics and then a comparison with hubble and the difference that it makes to install adaptive optics on these systems is is phenomenal. Oh yes, so so now particularly because the telescopes that you have on on Earth have a larger um, aperture, which mm. means you get inherently higher resolution images if it weren't for the atmosphere. So when you remove the aberrations that are present in the atmosphere, it means that you can actually now get better images from ground-based telescopes than you can from the Hubble Space Telescope. And the James Webb Telescope is particularly being optimised for looking at wavelengths which don't get transmitted by the atmosphere, because things like the, the ELT in Chile we were talking about earlier, that will give you 
phenomenally high resolution images, uh, very sensitive images, providing you've removed the atmospheric turbulence. Well, thanks for joining us, Professor John Gherkin from Durham University. And uh, it's been uh, hugely enlightening to, to find out just how much stuff is going on in the northeast and how exciting it all is as well to be um, playing such a, a key role in Britain's space programme and, and helping out so many other nations uh, around the world as well and, and even involvement on Mars right here from the northeast. Um, it's, it's, it's amazing to hear and uh, thanks for, for telling us about it. That's the reason that we do these things like this. Yeah, it, it's right. It is something that's very often understated around here. It carries on in its own uh, in, in its own right, but we're playing part in, in the whole world. And we're probably sometimes recognized um, across in the whole world more than we might be locally, which <laughs> sounds a, a real strange uh, aspect, but I think this can happen. The role that uh, the UK plays and again coming down locally plays it, it, it is, is it becoming increasingly obvious and there are opportunities for everyone to become involved in this. And our thanks to Professor John Gherkin from Durham University's Centre for Advanced Instrumentation for joining us on today's podcast. Super interesting. I love that kind of stuff. Adaptive optics is amazing, honestly. It's so clever. It blows my mind. <laughs> yeah, it was mind-blowing, the stuff that they're up to. And if you want to find out more, by the way, you can head to um, the Durham University website. And if you look for the Centre for Advanced Instrumentation, you'll find uh, all the latest news from their department as and when it arrives. Uh, my thanks, too, to Dan Pye. Thank you. And don't forget, for more information on Kielder Observatory, all the latest can be found by looking on our website, which is kielderobservatory.org. And you can follow us on social media too. Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, we're on them all. Look out for Kielder Observatory, and as soon as there's any news, it'll be straight into your newsfeed. And likewise with this podcast, if you hit subscribe, as soon as there's a new episode, it'll drop straight into your player of choice. We'll be back next month, March 2021, where hopefully... We'll have news of maybe being able to reopen if we keep our fingers crossed and, you know, feel the seaweed in the right way. Here's hoping. Take care in the meantime and enjoy the night sky. Thanks a lot.